morning. Let's pray. Lord, please open your word to us and our hearts to your word that we may learn of the one who sits on the throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was writing my PhD thesis, I worked as a security guard for the seventh largest financial organization in the U.S. People at the top of the company were considered the best America had to offer. They had multiple degrees from Ivy League universities. They were in all the right clubs, and they dressed and carried themselves like the corporate big shots that you see in the movies. Uh, they hung out with politicians, with celebrities, with uh, famous sports stars, and they were the very picture of power. Now, at first, I wondered why they weren't politicians, till it dawned on me that in the US, uh, real power isn't in the hands of the politicians. These men and women made more money and made fewer enemies than any politician, and they also had a greater control over everything that was going on around them. Then on the 25th of February, 1993, they all flew to New York to attend a conference at the World Trade Center, uh, which was slated for the next day. And as the news started to roll in on the 26th, there was a palpable sense of panic at work. A uh, few of you will remember that on that day, Muslim terrorists tried to blow up the World Trade Center with the result that over 1,000 people were hurt, six people were killed. Uh, death really is the great leveler. Uh, the more powerful people, uh, most powerful people I'd ever been around, uh, humanly speaking, were no more in control of what happened on that day than the people who cleaned the floors and made the sandwiches. And those left behind on that day would remember that feeling of helplessness for days. And you can imagine the relief when we learned that our colleagues had decided to go to a meal elsewhere and so they hadn't been in the building when this had happened. I've always known that I can't control events around me and I'll never be in a position of power in that way, but at least we can control ourselves. We can to our own selves be true and control our thoughts, words, and actions. I know this is true of you because, well, we wouldn't have let you into more college if that weren't the case. But then last week on Tuesday, Paul Grimman made a passing comment about how when we get in an argument, we say things that surprise even ourselves. Well, maybe he does. <laughs> maybe I do too. Who can tame the tongue? Who can control the heart? Who can keep the mind and therefore our actions within the boundaries established by God? Control is an illusion. And how can there be security if there is no control? This morning, I invite you to join me as we look at Jesus and events recorded in John 18, 1 to 11. Uh, Jesus has for some time been on the road to Jerusalem. Have you ever returned to Sydney on the long weekend? As you know, traffic starts to build up on the other side, well, of Campbelltown, or this side of uh, Newcastle, or near Wollongong, as thousands of people pour into the city. And it would have been like that for Jesus and these crowds, only they weren't isolated in these metal boxes that traveled down the road. They would have been a moving community of celebration. They were singing songs. They were sharing stories of God's great deliverance, God's goodness, and hoping that at last God's kingdom was about to be restored, that the Romans will at last be expelled, and they'll take with them the religious leaders who are making people's lives so miserable in Israel. And now Jesus, along with the tens of thousands of people, was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he's healed people. He's done amazing things. And he's re responded to questions from random strangers along the way. He's part of a massive crowd, like the one that had tried to make him king back on that lake up north. 
after he had fed thousands of people. And then he walked on that same lake, and now he was in Jerusalem, the royal city. Do you picture Jesus as God striding across the land? What then do you make of his crucifixion? Jesus has been on the march with tens of thousands, but by John 18, the army has been whittled down to 12. What's gone wrong? Is Jerusalem his kryptonite? And there has all along been a foreshadowing of suffering and rejection, but now it becomes so explicit. The coldness of death is everywhere in this chapter. Uh, They're in the Kidron Valley on a spring night. Verse 18 tells us it was a cold night. Peter is by the fire warming himself because it was cold. Everything has gone dark and cold. So do you picture Jesus as a mighty wonder worker, God incarnate, who shrinks, who becomes small and weak when he arrives in Jerusalem? Maybe he, like everyone else, loses control when events are too big for him. Maybe he is like that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they shave Aslan and discover that under all that fluff, he's nothing more than a big cat. I'd like to observe three things about Jesus in these verses. The first one is that Jesus wasn't captured. He came to them. Verse 2 says Judas knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus wasn't captured. He came to them. Jesus could have simply gone somewhere else, but instead he goes to a known place. When I picture a scenario like this, I ask myself, what would Jason Bourne do? Think of every movie scene you've ever seen When somebody is being hunted down, you get lost in the crowd. And John tells us on several occasions that the leaders feared the crowds. Jesus would have been safe if he had just slipped into the crowds. Instead, he isolates himself. But there's more to it than that. Judas knew where Jesus was because, well, that's where he always went. All Jesus had to do is say to the disciples, let's try something different tonight. Instead of heading for 77 Olive Grove Lane, why don't we try 15 Sycamore Avenue? That's all he needed to do to stay alive. Verse 3, so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now it's a full moon, which is when you hold the Passover, which means it wouldn't have been all that dark. In a world lit by candles and fires, the full moon would have been almost as bright as a reading lamp. They're not bringing torches and lanterns to light the way in that sense. They're bringing them so that they can hunt for the man that they expect to be hiding amongst the bushes somewhere. They think they're going to have to search for somebody who has run so that he can hide. We're told that there's a detachment of soldiers and officials from the priests and Pharisees. The word for the Roman soldiers here at a literal level points to 600 men, though on occasion it's used of 200. In verse 12, the leader is described as the commander, a word which literally means a ruler of 1,000. So the numbers are huge. They're prepared for battle, and they're even prepared to chase down the quarry. But in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, what is it you want? Instead of running and hiding, Jesus comes to them. In John 1.38, think back to, to that verse, some people are looking for Jesus, and Jesus' very first words in the gospel, what are you looking for? Now, with the same verbal form, Jesus asks again, what are you looking for? Everybody, whether we know it or not, is looking for Jesus. 
And he isn't trying to make himself hard to find. That's especially true in this incident when Jesus emerges from the walled grove he was in in order to approach the army coming to arrest him. Jesus wasn't captured. He came to them. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus wasn't overpowered. He gave himself up, verses 5 to 7. Uh, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Uh, in the previous verse, Jesus asked a question. Uh, in verse 4, they're answering his question. They're responding to him um, when he says, who is it you want? They're responding to him, not the other way around. When, they're saying they're, when they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he replies, I am. Verse 6, the army falls down. Psalm 27, verse 2. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Have you seen those goats that fall down when threatened? <laughs> Natural selection, survival of the fittest at its finest. I don't see how that's a winning strategy for goats. <laughs> and if it isn't for goats, I'm pretty sure that it isn't a useful tactic for an army. As easily as Jesus could have hidden himself just a few verses earlier, so now he clearly has power over them. And it's a ludicrous picture. How long does Jesus need to stand there waiting as the army pulls itself together, brushes itself off, gets back on its feet to continue with arresting him? And in verse 7, he says to them, Again, who is it you want? In fact, Jesus does all the interrogating and gives all the orders at his own arrest. He conducts his own arrest from start to finish. Third thing to observe, verses 8 to 11, Jesus wasn't a victim of fate. He saved others to please his father. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Uh, the NIV omits the word therefore. In if therefore you seek me, that is, Jesus says, I've told you I'm Jesus, the one you're looking for. And since I'm the one you want, therefore let these people go. He's drawing the focus of the army entirely onto himself, and in so doing, he controls the situation and commands the armies to let the disciples go free. When Jesus is on the cross, some people are going to say, he's, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah. Well, this is an instance of him doing exactly that. He is saving others. If it came to a skirmish, it's unlikely that the Romans would have cared much about collateral damage. But Jesus is here saving those who follow him. This night and all the way to the cross is the story of him saving others. And it's also telling us the price that it cost. It's, willing, it's his willingness to pay that price. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 9, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So often in John's telling of the life of Jesus, he says that something happens in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. Here he tells us that Jesus' words are themselves prophetic utterances, which find their fulfillment in the event of Jesus' life. John, as narrator, quotes what Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 12. There he was praying, now he is giving orders to foreign troops, with the result that I have lost none that you gave me. Now Peter doesn't get it. Verse 10, he seizes the moment and does what any of us might do, or at least the most courageous among us. Now my daughter did some fencing when she was in primary school. 
All I know, swords and sword fighting is what I've learned from watching Princess Bride. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that you, when you get into a sword fight, you don't aim for the ears. <laughs> Clearly, Peter's skills lie somewhere else. But he's followed Jesus. He loves and honors Jesus. And now he's doing the only thing that comes to mind in order to stop those who have come to stop Jesus, to keep him from establishing his kingdom. But Jesus tells him to stop, to put his sword away. It wasn't just the Jewish enemies of Jesus or even the Roman soldiers who had no concept of what Jesus was doing. Even his closest friends in this moment are lost. It isn't because they lack insane courage. It's because they don't understand, they can't comprehend that only through his death and resurrection can any of them be saved. How tragic that someone could be with Jesus for so long and have so much to offer and have so little insight into God's plan. Am I any different? Are you any different? Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter. So now with the word, Jesus halts Peter's single-handed assault on the huge army. Put your sword away. He's the one giving the commands, telling Peter to drop his weapons. And all of us need to know that Jesus' kingdom is not going to be established or, for that matter, defended by the sword. Religious teachers throughout history and even today embrace the sword. Jesus and his followers do not. But there's more here. He drinks the cup because of the Father's will, not because evil men were too strong for him. In fact, the cup speaks of God's judgment on sinners, and Jesus says that it has been given by the loving Father to the sinless Son. That's why he came. But Jesus doesn't shrink in the face of death. Jesus is not undone by events, and he doesn't lose control. He displays for us the power and glory of God as he, as he defeats sin and destroys the work of the devil. So what's the relevance for us? Well, first, we've been called to fix our eyes on Jesus in the context of human suffering. They were taught to deal with his suffering uh, and serving us. As we do this, we give him glory this morning. What would Jesus do? You know, I always feel so dismissive when I hear people talk in those terms. Um, my thought is, what would Jesus do? Yeah, he would suffer and die, and that pretty much excludes you. But as I've been thinking about this, 1 Peter 2.14 has been rolling around in my head. Again, in the context of Christian suffering, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I think we too easily say, I gave my life to Christ. Or take up your cross, or as Archie did last week as he instructed us, surrender your life to Christ. Without dwelling on the fact that every such phrase uses the language of death. And for most of us, well, the cost of taking up your cross has been manageable. But this is the language of death. When we say, I give my life to Christ, or we call one another to take up our cross. That's what makes me wonder. We don't have control to the point that we can extend our lives 
And we don't have control of events or even of ourselves. And maybe, therefore, the closest a Christian ever comes to being in control of anything is when we lay down our lives for the one who died for us. Then we can say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott Journal. So what should we say in conclusion? The one who faces this way, death this way is our Lord and God. Every element of this life, this night, is of his making and under his control. Death didn't have mastery over Jesus, and we don't need to wait for the bright sunshine of Easter morning to learn that. Even the shame of the cross cannot hide Jesus' glory. The entire scene displays Jesus' absolute control, even sovereignty over these events. His suffering and death wasn't a defeat, nor was it abandonment to the world. It's instead a working out of God's own good plan for salvation. This is not one battle among many. It's the ultimate confrontation. In John, the light goes into the darkness. The life goes to the grave, the righteous and holy one. The Lamb of God takes upon himself the sins of the world. And so darkness and chaos may look like they have mastery, but it's an illusion, the last gasp of an undefeated enemy. Who's in control in the age of pandemic? Who's in control in an age when we're defining even things as basic as male and female? Who's in control when our children are rebellion, rebelling or wandering or floundering or seriously sick or marriage is on the rocks or our own health is deteriorating? This Jesus is in control. This Jesus who conquers death. This Jesus who gives us life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing Jesus to us. And we thank you that even in his death, he remained the mighty one who conquered sin and defeated the devil. Please teach us about this Savior. And please help us to make him known for your glory. We pray it in his name.